Welcome to the great conversation where ideas matter. Ideas can shape markets, but more importantly, they can change our world. Today, we're going to be talking about cracking the code of leadership. And I, I think it's very important. Uh, in this podcast, we have talked about leadership characteristics. We've talked about leadership research. But when the rubber hits the road, the idea of bridging the gap between what we think leadership is and actually having a plan, a sustainable plan uh, to uh, have it realized within our organizations is very difficult. Uh, so when a researcher and thought leader who's been thinking about this idea for quite some time wrote a book and came to my attention and crossed my radar, I said, we have to have a great conversation. I want to welcome to the great conversation, Dan Eds. Uh, Dan, great to have you today. Thanks, Ryan. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be with you. Uh, Dan is not just an author and a researcher, though. He's also a practitioner. That is, uh, he's the managing director of Praxis that does exactly what I just talked about. So we get the uh, opportunity to talk about his thoughts today, how they were realized in, and expressed in a book, and also how it's practiced in reality in his consulting practice. Uh, but Dan, let's, let's, let's go right to it. What's your sense of urgency here? What, what is going on in today's mm. society and in, mm. in business practice that more than ever, this bridge is needed? What's the sense of urgency? Well, Ron, that's a great question. And there's a couple of, uh, I think there's a couple of points there. Um, one sense of urgency is uh, a report that comes out every two years by the Gallup organization which shows that right now roughly two-thirds of the American workforce is either not engaged with their work, which means they show up, they do their job, they go home, and they don't care, um, or they're actively drilling holes in the back of the lifeboat. Um, and those numbers really haven't changed much at all in the last 20 years. So there's, there's two ideas that come out of that that are really uh, sobering realities. One is that we know that when we have, when a, when a company has a highly engaged workforce, they have higher profitability, they have um, higher workforce retention, um, they have better product quality, and they have better customer satisfaction. Those are all hardcore data-driven realities. And it doesn't matter if you're talking about a technology firm or a manufacturing firm or a healthcare organization. So that's one thing. It's, it's the idea of the lost opportunity. And I think if we could quantify the dollars that we are losing because of, of a workforce that's disengaged from the work, it would, be, uh, it would be an astronomical amount of money that's just being flushed down the toilet. But the other thing is, is the more human side. Think about this, 50, I think Gallup reports that 53% of the American workforce comes to school, comes, <laughs> comes to school, goes to work every day, and their only connection to that job is that it puts food on their table, it pays their mortgage and gets their kids through college. Um, and by the time they're 50 years old, they're dreaming of retirement. Um, that is a monumental waste of human capacity and capability. 
And what I found is that high impact organizations have found ways uh, to engage their workforce so that they can maximize the basic human capacity for creativity, for innovation, for problem solving, and do it routinely within the cultures of their organization. You know, that word routinely, it's really interesting. Um, you know, when people hear the term systems, mm -hmm. uh, quite frankly, they think of hard work. Yep putting a system in place. So we're going right. to get into that spade work in a second. But for an employee, they don't want to believe in a system to be highly engaged. Uh, so when you said routinely, that is, mm -hmm. they're experiencing the outcome of a system that mm. maybe isn't visible to them. Is that correct? That's absolutely correct. So one of the things that I discovered in, uh, in my research and, 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 and you know, you know this as well as I do. Every system produces something. There's an output, um, and and I don't care if it's you know if it's a if it's an electronic system. Uh, you know, in our bodies right now, there are in your body and mind. There's eleven interconnected, fully integrated, independent systems that are functioning that are keeping us alive. And if you remove or degrade any one of those systems. Uh, either life ceases to exist or life itself becomes not quite so pleasurable. Um, and so when we think about leadership, well, what is the outcome or the output of leadership when we think about it as an organizational system? And most of the time we think in terms of profits, dollars and cents, organizational output. But what I found in my research, it really comes down to an experience of the workforce. Um, and that makes sense because what Gallup also points out to us is that 70% uh, of the quote variability and employee engagement is directly tied to the experience with the manager. Uh huh. And so we need to really begin rethinking uh, how we approach leadership. And today's millennials are really gonna drive this. I, I, I believe that the millennial generation is gonna drive a whole rethinking of leadership um, because they're, they're, they are um, consumers of the workplace experience. Mm -hmm. And if they don't get the experience they're looking for in the workplace, they will walk. Well, it's really interesting. Uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna play with that word manager for a second. I've seen mm. that I've seen that Gallup, uh, and I've experienced what Gallup found in the workplace with mm. my clients and mm -hmm. uh, and years ago when I was an employee. And I'm gonna I'm gonna turn it to there's a primary relationship in the workforce mm -hmm. that has a great deal of influence on my experience, and that relationship happens to be my manager. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. Is that right. a good way to right. state it? Perfect. So it is, it's not the role of a manager. It's not the task driven nature of that manager's mm -hmm. job. Mm -hmm. It's the relationship. Now that's interesting because in mm -hmm. business, we've been taught not to have mm -hmm. a relationship with our employees. Right. Have right. we? Is that correct? I think that's a fair statement. Yeah. The relationship is more transactional, isn't it? Yes. 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 And you just told me transactional is not going to empower engagement 
or mm. experience. Nope, nope, nope. It's a whole different set of terms. So, so you said something earlier. You said if we did an assessment of how much is lost, mm-hmm. are you finding that your approach to helping companies bridge the gap does start with an assessment? And if so, uh, does it get into quantifying what's being lost? Um, uh, I think my approach, yes, I think my approach fundamentally says, well, let's assess the, 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 the kind of leadership you have right now. Mm-hmm. And then let's design a system. Let's make, let's understand that leadership is, is systemic. There's a systems nature to it. What do we want that system to produce? And, you know, one of those things that we want it to produce is a, is an engaged workforce. So how do you do that? And there's a number of ways to do it. Um, most organizations uh, think that they can engage their workforce by paying a competitive salary and offering a few trinkets. Um, high impact organizations though say it's really, it really involves the, um, the experience of the workforce. And then you could start, well, what is, how, you know, what's the, what's the how, how engaged are the work, is the workforce? And uh, healthcare organizations are famous for this. They all do some kind of workforce engagement survey. Many other organizations do the same. Unfortunately, most of them take that and then they say, oh, okay, isn't it too bad that only 35% of our workforce is engaged and they go on about their business. Or they may turn over to the HR department and say, can you figure this out? And uh, it never works. And so then I think we, I, we start a conversation about, okay, well, what happens? What's, what will it take? to get the, uh, the, the, the engagement levels of the workforce up to maybe 50% or 75%. And what does that look like? What does that mean in terms of, of innovation? What does it mean in terms of uh, well, workforce retention? Um, and then you can, st- you can start quantifying what that actually means in dollars and cents. Well, it's really interesting. Um if we have treated our employees like a tool, like a hammer or a nail, and we have a transactional relationship when um, we're missing out on, um, you know, I, this word imagination comes up a lot, a lot recently. Mm-hmm. I was, um, I've mentioned a book called Sapiens with mm-hmm. this idea mm-hmm. of the human imagination. Mm-hmm. And I believe you've stated in your book, uh, or in your writings, that a human being has unlimited, mm-hmm. maybe unimaginable capacity. Yep. Go into yep. that. What's your, yeah. what's your philosophy there? Well, um, I have a fundamental belief that human beings, because of the, the of the nature of being human, um, we have unimaginable capacity to create. Um, I mean, just look at art, you know, I'm not an artist, but I could look at art and go, wow. Um, Think about the innovations that's come along in technology. I mean, who would have ever dreamed that we would have the technology that we do today, you know, even a handful of years ago. Um, Think about the human capacity to deal with trauma um, and, and, and to be you know, to be the Mother Teresa's of the world in the midst of traumatic circumstances. Um, 
And yet so many times when we go to work, we're sort of told, oh, put that human part of you, leave that at the door. Uh, we recognize that that's important, but the only thing I really want you to do is to push this button, to push this, you know, round peg and a round hole. And I, the only thing I really want you to do, I, I, only, I only want the professional technical skills that you bring to the workplace. You know, everything else, just leave at the door. And um, in fact, one of the people I interview in, in the book is uh, an elementary school principal that in five years took a school from uh, failing on multiple fronts to the highest performing school in a district of 25,000 students. And then when that wasn't good enough, they took it up another notch and became the only school to close the achievement gap, which um, is a monumental achievement. And um, when I was interviewing her, she started talking about the, her approach to developing her people and was all about, you know, I want my people to be self-confident and empowered. And it was really very holistic. And so finally, I stopped her and I said, wait a minute, are you talking about the way you approach the development of your, of your people? Are you talking about developing the whole person, the, the full capacity of the human being? And uh, it was kind of funny. She looked at me like I was from a different planet. And she said, yes, why would I want half a teacher walking in my door? And I think that the same thing could be said was, why would I want half a doctor walking in my door or half a nurse? or half of a medical technologist, or half of a, of a tool cutter in a, in a machine shop, or half of an attorney, or half of a, you know, whatever. Um, we all walk in the door with amazing capacities. And we don't just stop being human when we walk in the door. Yet too many organizations say, no, I just want the professional bits. I don't want the other stuff. And that's the best part. Well, I love this idea of unimaginable capacity, Dan, and, uh, and this idea of wholeness can be, in a sense, a, a competitive differentiator mm. uh, in the organization. Um, so I, I do know many of us are navigating this nuance, though. Things have to get done. They have to mm -hmm. work within a process using mm -hmm. our tools within the organization. Mm -hmm. So there's this sense many times that we all have to pull on the same oar, but, but what I'm hearing from millennials is they want to pull on their own oar. And what we're trying to do is get them to pull on their own oars in sequence of the mm. ship. Yeah. 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 So, so you, you understand the difference yeah. there. They don't want to necessarily pull on everyone's oar. They want, to be empowered in their or tell me about that how do how do we navigate that nuance well i you know it, it's interesting um there's research about that um you know we love to um you know disparage millennials and say well they're all selfish and and only in it for themselves and they're disloyal but the, the the research says that when you give them what they want in terms of their experience they're actually more loyal than you and I as their baby boomer, you know, parents and grandparents. Um, what they're looking for is number one, an experience, and they want that experience to be aligned with their own personal values as well. Um, I think I love, I love this about millennials. They don't want to have their personal life and then their professional life in two separate buckets. They want them merged. Uh, 
and they want the organizations they work for to have values and they want to be able, they want to know what those values are. Now, I haven't found any research that says millennials don't uh, respect process. In fact, I think probably most of the research would say, yeah, they do, they respect process a lot. But at the same time, they come to the marketplace fully expecting to have their voice heard, to be, to have a, a, full, a, a full chair at the table, if you will. Um, they have no patience for those of us who waited our turn, if you will, in organizational um, hierarchy. Um, they, they, and, and we've raised them to, to believe that they can do anything, anytime they've, they've, they want. So they come to the marketplace fully expecting to be heard completely. And um, I actually think that's a good thing. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, we, we, we need to understand that millennials think differently as well as, you know, you know as, as we all thought differently. Yeah, I don't even like using the term anymore. I talk about next generation leaders. Yep. Uh, and because uh, the term itself pigeonholes them. And, sure. uh, and you're right, this next generation of leaders want their or they also want their voice to be heard on the ship in mm -hmm. which they're rowing. Yes. And if we believe, and this is this is the belief system that I'm intrigued about with you, Dan. If we truly do believe in unimaginable capacity of each and every person in our organization, which mm -hmm. I think is going to be your biggest struggle when you when you when you sell your methodology inside mm -hmm. an enterprise, because mm -hmm. I, I think that belief system is your your biggest construct that you have mm -hmm. to get sold, isn't it? Yep. Yeah, yeah, wouldn't would not disagree with that a bit. Um, you know, we we in uh, in uh, conferences and seminars and workshops we talk about the um, you know the wonderful capacities of human beings, but then when we come to the workplace, we sort of want human beings to just do these you know do these tasks and and do these transactional things. Um, and yet, what I found is that uh, high impact organizations they've made a jump and I think it is a mindset from a human being, a member of the workforce is, is an asset that has to be managed. That's the average organization. High impact organizations say, no, people are a resource. And if we can develop that resource, we can develop unimaginable value. And what I saw in my research is that mind shift, it's, 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 a, it's a huge shift in thinking between a person is an asset, therefore it has to be managed, to a person is a resource. And if we can develop that resource, we can create more value for our customers. And interestingly, it's not a moral argument. Um, I, I, although I think often we, you know, we say, well, we either invest in our people or we, or we make money. And what I found is that high impact organizations, they say, well, we're going to invest in our people and our people will drive our profits. And that's exactly what you see. There's, there's no, there's no um, conflict between having a high engaged, high impact workforce 
and high profits. In fact, I would even go so far as to say, if you want to create more value for your, your customers, you have to see your people as resources that, that, that you can develop unimaginable value from your people. Um, quick story and then I'll be done with that. Um, a local hospital here, uh, when I had a tour of their facilities by one of their, one of their executives spent an entire morning with me. I was so blown away with what I saw and how they developed their people. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't just, we're going to send people out to a school, you know, training school now and then they intentionally developed the whole person they saw and they had systems and processes in place to develop a more self-confident and more empowered workforce. Um, I was so blown away by that. I actually called up, um, uh, Dr. Barbara Kellerman at Harvard, uh, Harvard University, who teaches in the Kennedy School of Government there. I said, can you explain this to me? And um, I'll reference a book that she told me to, told me to, uh, to read. It's called um, An Everyone Culture, written by two um, Harvard professors where they, they profile three organizations um, where those organizations, their mission is to recreate the world of work. And um, all three of these organizations are highly profitable. They're leaders in their industry. And oh, by the way, they're also recreating the world of work. Uh, in uh, earlier conversations in this forum, uh, Dan, we, you know, I brought up the quote, I believe it's from Thoreau, one of our great American philosophers. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. who said uh, most people live lives of quiet mm -hmm. desperation. Mm -hmm. And uh, to your point, you know, we know that because if they live most of their lives in a workplace mm -hmm. mm -hmm. and all they're looking forward to are weekends, vacations, and retirement, mm -hmm. we know that phrase is probably correct. Yes. And what a waste, absolute waste of human opportunity. Right. So um, I think what I'm so excited about in talking to you and also your book is you're essentially teasing out for a CEO and their team that they should think of their company as having unimaginable capacity if they can only unleash the mm -hmm. capacity within. Yep, yep, yep. We, you know, we talk a lot about how to create a culture of innovation. And from what I saw in my research, um, it really comes down to the employee rewarding them for some risk and recognizing their capacity. Um, I'll tell you just one, one quick story. One of, the, one of the organizations I looked at is a small manufacturing company. They have 200 employees. Um, they intentionally, strategically, systematically uh, seek to engage their employees in finding and eliminating waste from the manufacturing process. Mm -hmm. And um, 200 employees every year on their own initiate somewhere between 1,000 and 1,250 ways to improve internal processes, eliminate waste. Each one of those ideas saves the company approximately $1,000. It's the equivalent of extracting four to 5% of gross sales out of their cost structure 
each and every year. Wow. Which gives them unbelievable um, flexibility in pricing, yeah. how to do pricing, the customers that they want to serve. Then this is not an exaggeration. They have a waiting list of customers who want to do business with them. Dan, uh, in your book, you to put together that book, you ended up um, studying different mm -hmm. case studies. You've illuminated mm -hmm. some of those today. You also had personal interviews with mm -hmm. intriguing leaders mm -hmm. in, in the marketplace <laughs> and in government. Mm -hmm. What was your most surprising interview? And yeah, well, um, it was actually two of them, um, uh, but both from the same institution. One was a uh, full colonel in the United States Army. He was just a few weeks away from retirement, been in the in service for 34 years. Most of that time with the Special Forces, he was U.S. Army Ranger. And um, when I asked him uh, about how the Army approaches leadership, he said, well, we practice servant leadership. And on the next breath, he's talking to me about love. And I was like, oh, okay. I wasn't expecting that word. And I, but I kind of put it on, on the, you know, kind of mentally put it on the shelf. About a year later, um, I'm talking with, uh, hands down, the most uh, amazing one-hour conversation I've had in my career. Um, guy's name was General Barry McCaffrey. Uh, you still see him on the news. He's a paid analyst for NBC, I think, on issues of national security. Um, retired as a four-star general. Some suggested that when he retired from the Army, he was the most highly decorated um, general to have ever worn the uniform. He went on to uh, serve in the Clinton administration as the nation's drug czar for um, five and a half years. And I asked him the same question. I said, um, so if they're, you know, how does the army approach the practice of leadership? And he immediately said, we practice servant leadership. And then he, then he starts telling me about love. And I'm like, really? And he, he starts telling me about, um, one of his mentors, General Norman Schwarzkopf, during the first Gulf War. So we're talking 1991, 92. And um, he said, Norman Schwarzkopf actually loved a soldier. And uh, General McCaffrey, this is, these are exact words. He says, I was one of his divisional commanders, which means for us non-military types, um, he's the CEO of a workforce of 26,000 soldiers. Um, he said, uh, I was one of his divisional commanders and he actually loved me. And uh, frankly, I didn't hear that during the conversation because I was so focused on you know, the conversation. But when I was reading the transcript later, I read that and I said, he actually loved me. Thought, Did he actually say that? Here you have a guy, he holds three purple hearts for wounds received in combat in Vietnam. He's personally led men into combat and he's talking about love and servant leadership all in the context of being an effective leader. And um, uh, when I read that in the transcript, uh, I gotta say, I was moved to tears. I would never have expected that kind of I mean, I think of love as something that's very emotional, it's, it's, it's personal, but yet when I asked him, how does the army reinforce 
servant leadership and this concept of love, he said, well, uh, and he actually gave me three ways, but I'll, I'll, I'll give you one. He said, when a, a helicopter, when a team, when a, when a team is getting on a helicopter to go out to on a mission, he said, the highest ranking officer is the last one to get on that helicopter. And he said, the highest ranking officer is the first one to get off that helicopter because they are putting themselves into harm's way first. Now, I've been told that there's all kinds of logistical reasons for that, but what he was telling me was the United States Army, one of the core values of the US Army is selfless service, which they define as putting the welfare of the nation, the army, and your subordinates above your own. So my conclusion is that when a US Army officer enlisted or commissioned puts the welfare of their subordinates above their own, they are making a statement, a practice, and they are modeling love. Is there a better definition of love than putting the welfare of people who looked up to you for leadership above your own welfare? So if I was listening to this podcast today, I'd run out and try to look to someone who help, who can help me dev- define a sustainable system mm-hmm. to create love that will inspire ownership mm-hmm. and discipline and mm-hmm. engagement mm-hmm. for my company. Beautiful. And Beautiful. Uh, Dan Eds, you've inspired us today on The Great Conversation. It's been a great one. I uh, urge everyone to look up his book, Leveraging the Genetics of Leadership. And we'll have him back in the future to discuss what kinds of experiences he's had actually implementing this system mm. over time. Dan, thank you again. Well, thank you.